your own personal ambition. And the gospel reads, an argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, aware of their inner thoughts, took a little child and put it by his side and said to them, whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For the least among all of you is the greatest. And it's comforting to some small degree that at least the disciples were not arguing about who is greater than Jesus. We have to give them that much credit that they were wise enough to understand that if they were going to talk about this business of comparative greatness, the only way they could do it was to take Jesus and God out of the picture. And then once they've done that, well, then they're in a position to argue about who is going to be the greatest servant of Jesus, who's going to be the greatest apostle, who's going to be the greatest follower of Jesus Christ. But immediately we recognize that there's a problem with that kind of thinking, that being great doesn't consist in forgetting about God and forgetting about Jesus and taking them out of the picture. It consists in leaving them in the picture and then forgetting about yourself. And Jesus does something which was very remarkable. We're familiar with it, so it doesn't catch us by surprise, but he takes a child and sets the child in their midst and the disciples would have taken it for granted that they were greater than a child. Of course they're greater than a child. A child can't do anything. A child can't start a ministry. A child can't start a business. A child doesn't know how to run a company. I mean, of course they're greater than a child. They don't even want to argue about that. But Jesus brings to their attention, look, if you're going to try to emulate anyone, if you're going to try to imitate anyone, you should be trying to imitate this little child who knows that he or she is not great. And that's the reason why the child is great, because the child makes himself or herself small and therefore lives in a gigantic universe. And they're not trying this ridiculous experiment that the apostles are trying. They're not trying to make themselves big by shrinking the world and taking God and Jesus out of it. And so he tells the disciples that, look, this is who you should be imitating here. And by the way, this is one aspect that really separates Christian ethics, I guess you could say, from secular morality. I mean, this is one of the key differences here, because you will hear secular priests, if I can call them that, talk about kindness, they'll talk about generosity, sometimes they'll talk about compassion, sometimes they'll talk about love. But when it comes to this business of modesty, as far as the world goes, is the maxim, well, you should be confident, but not cocky. That's the world's take on humility. But you'll never hear a secularist take a child and say, this is who you should be imitating. 
Because emulation is the driving force of many secular people. Because once again, when you take God out of the picture, then we can start thinking about how comparatively great we are as human beings. And the whole point of life is to be driven to be the best, to be better than someone else in whatever field that might be. And just to give you one example, which I think will make my point clearer, what if we took, for example, the large number of women, and especially young women, teenage girls, who are so concerned about their appearance that they oftentimes resort to desperate measures in order to change the way that they look. And this is something that I've experienced firsthand because I've worked with teenage girls. And you ask the question, all right, well, why do they do that? And in one sense, the answer is simple. They want to be found attractive. They want to be loved. And certainly, I'm not going to fault anybody for that. There's nothing wrong with the desire to be found attractive. There's nothing wrong with the desire to be loved. We need to be loved. But then the question comes, and the answer has to be taken seriously, and I don't think the answer often is taken seriously. The question is, what makes a person attractive? And attractive to whom? In other words, do we really believe that on Judgment Day that what God is going to do is He's going to set out some scales and weigh people and count their wrinkles? And we know that that's not true. We know that what makes someone attractive and beautiful in the eyes of God is a humble spirit and a heart of thanksgiving. Now, obviously, the world doesn't care about that when it comes to measuring beauty. That's not how... The world measures beauty. It's all about size, shape, color. But why should we care how the world measures beauty in the church? This is so important because, generally speaking, I mean, men and women included, the source of the insecurity that plagues countless people on this planet is this veiled desire to engage in self-worship. This is so important because people need to understand true humility is not what makes someone insecure. What makes someone insecure is vanity and pride. We want to be admired. We want to be pleased with ourselves. We want to worship ourselves. And when our faults and failings prevent us from doing it, sometimes we succumb to discouragement. And then sometimes people succumb to depression and despair and even suicidal thoughts. And what is the solution to this problem? Jesus makes it clear. The least among you will be the greatest. That the door through which we enter the kingdom of heaven is not only narrow, but it's small, and we enter through it by making ourselves small. And then Scripture tells us that when we have humbled ourselves, then God will exalt us. Once we have forgotten about any 
illusion of our own greatness and focus on God's greatness, we will become truly great. And that's why Jesus says, if you're going to imitate somebody, imitate this little child who is great because he knows he's not great. But there's another very important lesson here that's really easy to miss. And I would not have ever really focused on it if it weren't for a sermon I read called A Child in the Midst a long time ago. But when we think about children nowadays, a lot of people speak, and when I say a lot of people right now, I'm referring to a lot of people who profess to be believers, speak as if children are really just baggage and that parenthood is something akin to slavery. And that's what being a parent is, and that's what having a child is. Now, of course, any sensible parent is going to admit that parenthood is a huge and enormous responsibility, and that it's difficult. Every sensible parent is going to admit that much. But in that sense, it's just like anything else. If it didn't cost anything, it wouldn't be worth anything. And what Jesus is saying here is, look, when you receive a little child, you are receiving me and the one who sent me. And let's just stop there and pause and think about what that means. Think about what that means, mothers and fathers, grandparents, aunts, uncles, friends, Sunday school teachers. When you receive a little child and embrace that child, Jesus says you are receiving the God who created the universe. You are receiving his eternal son, Jesus Christ. And that is not slavery. That is the very essence of freedom. And it's something that we need to remind ourselves. I try to remind myself when I pick up my little girl these words that Jesus said, whoever receives this child is welcoming and receiving me. And that's why it's such a blessing, especially in our church right now, that we have all these little babies coming into our church and we need to rejoice over that. We need to rejoice in this manifestation of the kingdom of God that he places right here in our midst. All right, that brings me to verse 49, the next little section we're looking at. Verses 49 and 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. Now, I'm not really planning on saying a whole lot about this little section in particular, but what we can see is this unhealthy exclusivism is already starting to manifest itself amongst Jesus' disciples. And they want to say to this person, look, you don't have the right credentials. You're not the right kind of follower, so don't try to do ministry. Don't try to cast out demons in Jesus' name. And Jesus tells his disciples, this is not the right attitude. Don't try to stop him. Whoever is not against you is for you. And then in verse 51, we read, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, 
he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. All right. Samaria, again, is this region which is between Galilee where Jesus lived as a carpenter's apprentice for many years, and Judea, where the temple is. And Samaria was also the capital of the northern kingdom. And some of you may remember that when King David's son Solomon died, the nation Israel was divided into the north and to the south. And the Samaritans are the remnants, you could say, of this northern kingdom. And they still considered themselves to be descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They still considered that to be their identity, but they had developed their own religious practices and even their own scripture. And the Jews looked at them as being second-class Israelites for this reason, not the genuine article, not true descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of course, the Samaritans know this, and so they don't really like the Jews that much. And they don't see the temple as being the place that anybody needs to go to worship God. So they are not real eager to welcome pilgrims that are making that trip from Galilee to Judea, because they think, you don't need to do that to worship God. We don't do that, and we worship the same true God. Well, Now we've got a situation where these Samaritans, which are, again, considered half-breeds, they're considered this culture that assimilated with the heathens and compromised, denying passage to the rightful king of Israel, the Messiah. And we have to remember that James and John, not too long ago with Peter, were on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw the glory of God manifest itself in Jesus like a bolt of lightning. They were enveloped in a cloud. They heard the voice say, this is my son, listen to him. And now they're trying to go down to Jerusalem and these Samaritans of all people have the temerity to say, no, we're not going to let you pass. And so James and John, in a fit of Old Testament passion, say, Jesus, why don't we just pray to God and have him just burn this place to the ground like Sodom and Gomorrah. Why should these people spit in your face? That's just absurd. Who do they think that they are? And Jesus rebukes them. He tells them that that's not the ministry that he's come to accomplish, that he hasn't come to condemn people. He came to save them. And there's a very important lesson in here for us to recognize, and that is that anyone who takes the Christian faith seriously is at some point going to be faced with this temptation to self-righteousness. I mean, I think it is unavoidable. Now, not 
everyone necessarily feels it. Not everyone necessarily identifies with James and John, but I would submit that's because not everyone really does take the faith as seriously as they were taking it. But when you start to take it seriously and then you recognize that we live in a world where, for example, you have a very large number of atheists that are very militantly against any kind of belief in God that ridicule and mock Christians and any other theist as being stupid and unscientific and they will blaspheme God from morning until night. And then we have other religions that mock us because we believe in the incarnation and how can Jesus be God and how can God pray to God? How can God worship God? You're so stupid. It's so irrational. It is easy to get wrapped up in this mindset. God, why do you allow these people to do this? Why do you allow them to act as barriers against the truth? Wouldn't it be better if you just cleared the path, so to speak. And then to make matters even more complicated, we have what you could call the lukewarm Christians, those who profess Jesus with their lips but deny him with their lives, so to speak. They are just as worldly as the world. They have no problem lying, cheating, and stealing without feeling any sense of remorse, regret, so on and so forth. What is our attitude supposed to be towards people like that. And someone at this point could, if they wanted, quote, Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus himself tells the lukewarm Christians, look, I will spit you out of my mouth. But that's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm not talking about the New Testament stance or Jesus' stance on lukewarm Christianity. What I'm talking about is what is our attitude supposed to be towards lukewarm Christians, towards Muslim, towards atheists. And first and foremost, we need to be very careful before we label anyone a lukewarm Christian, knowing that we ourselves are far from perfect. I mean, in a sense, that's a very dangerous game to play. But we want to talk about the attitude we're supposed to have. When we look in Scripture, we see John saying, for example, that whoever says he hates his brother and loves God is a liar and the truth is not in him. And he says if we can't love the people who we see, we're not going to be able to love God who we can't see. And then we find the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Romans, chapter 9, talking about the Jews that had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And what does Paul say about them? What's his attitude towards them? His attitude is he's completely heartbroken. And he says, you know what? I could wish that I myself were cut off from Christ and accursed for the sake of my brethren. He is not rejoicing over the fact that they have rejected Jesus. He's not asking for fire and brimstone to fall from heaven on them. He's praying for them earnestly. He's saying, I wish I could be cut off so that they could be saved. That's the attitude that we need to have towards, like I said, the lukewarm, towards unbelievers, towards those who do believe in God but reject the rest of Christian doctrine. And having said that, I think that Martin Luther was perfectly right when he said that mankind is like a drunk who falls off one side of his horse and then gets back on the horse and falls off the other side. And 
In other words, when we talk about this issue of self-righteousness, I've been trying to make it clear that the solution to it is not lukewarm Christianity. And Luke makes this clear in the way that he structures his gospel at this point. It's very interesting because right after these two passages where he is implicitly rebuking a self-righteous attitude in John and James, he then, right next to it, he places these passages that we're going to look at next where Jesus illuminates the cost of discipleship. He puts the two right together. And I don't think that was any accident myself. But if we look at verse 57 now, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own debt. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, in Reference to this first person that Jesus addresses here. And one thing about the gospel that's interesting to me is, I, for one, would really like to know what happened to these people. I mean, we're not really given how they respond after Jesus speaks to them. You know, this one person says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, well, I don't have a home. And then we're not told how the person responds after that, or these other people. And I think that we shouldn't try to jump to conclusions one way or the other. Because I think the point is what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's challenging people's assumptions and he's challenging their priorities. And he's trying to orient them in the right way towards the kingdom of God. Now, in one sense, it's almost embarrassing and ridiculous for someone who lives a life as comfortable as I do to talk about the cost of discipleship in terms of foxes have holds, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And especially when we think about people like Pastor Jean, who last week was telling us about these these orphans in the jungle who don't even know what a flush toilet is. Obviously, when we hear about that, we think, all right, I really should not be complaining about my life here in America. But the reality of it is, no matter who you are, no matter what kind of life you live, you're going to have hardships. You're going to have some level of discomfort. It can't be escaped. And the point is, it can't be escaped either by becoming a disciple of Jesus. Jesus is making that abundantly clear. That Don't think that following me means that you're going to have a comfortable life, that it's guaranteed. He's making the point perfectly clear that everyone has a cross that they have to bear. Everyone has hardships they have to endure. Everyone has personal sacrifices that they need to make. And we shouldn't think that it's some unexpected reality when we're faced with these issues in our life. Because Jesus said it's part of the gig. It doesn't go away just because you follow me. 
Now, the next two people are in a little bit of a different class. These are people who appear to be willing to follow Jesus, but they feel like they have these genuine obligations that need to be met first before they can start following him. And, of course, to our ears, the words of Jesus in this passage sound very hard. I mean, when he tells this man, look, you can't go bury your father. You come follow me. And he tells this other person, look, you don't get to say goodbye to your friends and family. You come follow me. But in all fairness, in regard to the man who is burying his father, something that we don't oftentimes recognize is that in ancient Jewish culture, oftentimes what would happen with the death of a relative like a father is you would have a funeral, you would seal the body in a tomb, and then you would wait an entire year for the body to decompose. Then you would take the bones out of the tomb and place them in an ossuary. And of course, if that's the case, this individual, say he buried his father just a month ago, well, he would still have 11 months to go before he could start following Jesus Christ. And when we think about it in those terms, it starts to make a little bit more sense. But at the same time, it's still a hard saying because burying your father was considered this sacred duty. I mean, it was part of fulfilling the command to honor your mother and your father. And it has roots as a tradition in the Old Testament. We think of Jacob, for example, whose one of his last requests to his children was, look, I don't want to be buried in Egypt. When I die, you take my remains and you place them with my forefathers. This was something that was very important. How the body was buried was very important because they believed that those bones were going to be the bones of your resurrected body. That was the Jewish belief at this time, or at least among some of the Jews. So it was a very important thing. And what we hear in this passage is that Jesus is just telling us that all of these obligations, all of these priorities are not as important as eternity. And to follow him, we have to recognize that he is Lord over all, over every aspect of our life. There's nothing more important than obeying Jesus Christ. Now, how this plays itself out in a modern sense is a little bit more difficult to discern because, of course, we don't see Jesus in the flesh the way that these people did. But we do have the Holy Spirit. And I think if there's one lesson that we can glean from this passage for certain, one thing that we can know for certain, that when it comes to this question, when is the right time to surrender my life to Jesus Christ, the answer is now. That is the answer. And I can remember hearing a testimony of a man who was saying that for the longest time, what prevented him from accepting the Christian faith was a fear of hypocrisy. He said, you know what, I want to commit my life to Christ. I want to become a Christian, but... There was a time in my life when I thought, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be like those lukewarm Christians I was talking about earlier. Those people that pretend to be Christians but really aren't Christians. He said, I don't want to have any part of that. 
And you have to admit that on the face of it, that makes some sense. But it's based on a very simple misunderstanding. And the misunderstanding is this. Getting your act together is not something you do before you come to Jesus Christ. Coming to Jesus Christ is how you get your act together. And if we want to talk about preparation, you know, what preparation do I need to go through before I come to Jesus? Your preparation is to realize that you're pitiful, wretched, poor, blind, and depraved. And if you realize that, you're ready. You're ready to call upon the Lord, and the Scripture tells us that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. When you say, Jesus, I'm ready, I know I need you, come and take me home to the Father. And that is the call for any of us here today. If you hear Jesus knocking at the door of your heart, that's the response. The time to follow Him is now. The time to make Him the Lord of your life is now. Now is the time to put our hands to the plow and never look back. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity you give us to fellowship here together this morning. And I want to ask that we would take with us what is true and what is good and what is fruitful and that you'd burn away anything that is, that is false or errant, God, so that we can live lives that are wholly pleasing to you. And we just thank you for the gift of life that you've given us. We pray that we would receive your grace and worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.